it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. Welcome to Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Dominich. Jimmy is off doing some kind of crazy thing, I'm sure, that we'll all have to answer about at press conferences in the future. How does this man get himself in so many different pickles whenever it comes time for Christmas vacation? Uh, I am happy to be here with you today where we have a ton of things to talk about. We have the craziness going on in our airports with Southwest Airlines. We have this horrible story uh, regarding the actions of Twitter in recent years that has been uh, at the top of mind for so many different people in terms of the, the level to which we had uh, government entities and the Biden team affecting the, the way that we discussed things here in America of the utmost importance in ways that I think you know, are really a danger to the entire American conversation and to the faith that we place in government officials. But I have to start off by saying uh, I was really impressed with uh, a number of different people in terms of their performances this year when it came to uh, the media, their commentary, and the impact that they had on our national conversation. And one of those people who has impressed me, as I'm sure has impressed many of you, is Tulsi Gabbard, the former congressman uh, from Hawaii who has been obviously uh, an ever-present force here on Fox uh, in a number of different capacities over the past year uh, and had the opportunity last night to interview someone at the center of a real maelstrom in terms of the post-midterm conversation, and that's the representative-elect from New York's 3rd Congressional District, George Santos. She had a conversation with him that I hope you take the time to watch in full because it really was, I think, an example of how a tough interviewer can come from a lot of different backgrounds. And frankly, you know, it's an example of how little the kind of, of faith that we can have in our existing media establishment uh, really is put there in the right place. She really held uh, this uh, elected representative feet to the fire over the fact that his, uh, it turns out, much of his biography seems to have been invented out of thin air. Uh, in a really disturbing way. Uh, let's listen to some of the things that George Santos had to say last night on Fox News to Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, cut 11. My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew, I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign, I'd say, guys, I'm Jewish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. So look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. I, I'm going to reassure this once and for all. I'm not a facade. I'm not a persona. I, I have an extensive career that I worked really hard to achieve. And I'm going to deliver from my experience because I remain committed in delivering results for the American people. I campaigned on inflation. I campaigned on crime. I campaigned on education. I campaigned on delivering resolve for the American people. You know, and that's the sort of thing that you, you know, I think are used to hearing from politicians who are trying to spin their way out of a problem. But Tulsi really was not letting him have that kind of, of freedom. Let's listen to Cut 12. I agree with what you're saying. And as I stated and I continue, 
we can debate my my resume and how I worked with firms such as Goldman. Is and it Citigroup debatable or is it long, just false? But, no, is it's it very, debatable no, or is very it just debatable. false? I, no, no, it's not false at all. It's it's debatable. I can I can sit down and explain to you what you can do in private equity, in in capital intro, via servicing limited partners and general partners, and we can have this discussion that's going to go way above the American people's head. But that's not what I campaigned on. I campaigned on delivering results wow. for the American people by, by lowering inflation. I can sit down, and if you want to have that discussion, I'd be glad to Tulsi to explain that to you Co and make sure that we 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 settle the score. You know, I think that one of the things we need to understand is that we have, in recent years, put a lot, much, a lot too much faith, in my view, on local reporting to spool out the truth about various candidates for office. We've put too much faith in the existing media establishment to tell us the truth about uh, candidates in ways that uh, delve into their backgrounds and research their biographies, their resumes, and the like. Uh, and, you know, in a circumstance like this, where it turns out that, you know, it, it, at least according to the reporting that we have, Santos is basically he's lied about the college that he went to. He's lied about the work that he's done. He's lied about the companies that he's worked for. And he's lied about a number of other aspects of his history. Uh, it now explains a little bit when he comes to uh, saying that he considers himself Jewish, uh, why he might refer to uh, the prime minister of Israel as David Netanyahu, as he did recently. But I think that one of the things that we can take away from this is that those entities that we put our faith in, whether it's local parties or uh, local media, they really don't do that good of a job anymore. I recall, you know, recently uh, in Virginia, the, the whole experience that happened, you know, it seems like a, a distant memory now, uh, where a Democrat governor had had all of these, uh, you know, horrible pictures that he participated in uh, when he was in college. And then that led to a cascade of revelations about other top uh, Democrats also having, you know, uh, participated in black or brown face uh, when they were in their college careers. All things that obviously you would think would come up in a campaign, especially a competitive campaign uh, in a swing state, and yet none of that actually happened. And the real reason, of course, is that these dominant media entities, entities like the New York Times, like the Washington Post, are more than happy to look in the other direction when it comes to one side of the aisle. And then when it comes to covering you know, Republicans and the like, uh, their, uh, their level of trust that they have from electorates is so low that even if they were to report some of these things out, it would come across as just trying to smear someone who they disagree with ideologically. But of course, this is not a unique problem when it comes to one side of the aisle. And as much as Democrats are arguing today that it would be an insult to seat Santos, that he's not someone who should ever be a member of Congress, the truth is that this is them ignoring the log in their own eye. Uh, let's listen to some other things about another politician. Let's start with cut 14. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and, in fact, ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class, that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. 
I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. Joe Biden was victimized by the truth. Cannot measure the health of our children. The health of our children. The quality of our education. The quality of their education. The joy of their play. Or the joy of their play. Biden gave Kennedy no credit. He has also quoted or paraphrased John Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, and British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock, all without credit. Uh, three degrees. I mean, that's a lot. Uh, that uh, comment, that flyweight comment, by the way, from uh, the great Mort Kondracki on the McLaughlin Group. I-, I think that one of the things that we have to appreciate here is that when it comes to Joe Biden's past, everyone has been happy to look in the other direction uh, throughout his continued and ridiculous tall tales that he's uh, told over the past several years. Let's listen to Cut 15. And if we I don't do... drive an 18-wheeler, man. Yeah. Oh, I wish oh, I yeah. could. <laughs> That's I awesome. got to. So I became a full professor at the University of Pennsylvania. This day, 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our UN ambassador on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. When he came to the United States, and I said, Mr. President, he leaned, I said, thank you. Thank you for trying to come and see me. And a guy named Angelo Negri came up. He goes, Joey, baby, grabbed my cheek like that. And I thought they were going to shoot him. I really did. I said, no, 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 no. Corn Pop was a bad dude. <laughs> and he ran a bunch of bad boys. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you, off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. And I, he said, I'll be waiting for you. He was waiting for three guys in straight razors. And it's not like this is a problem that's gone away over the course of Joe Biden's career. Just listen to this from just the last couple of weeks, cut 16. You know, I, uh, my dad, when I got elected vice president, he said, Joey, Uncle Frank fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was not feeling very well now, not because of the Battle of the Bulge, but he said, and he won the Purple Heart. And he never received it. He never, he never got it. Do you think you could help him get it? We'll surprise him. So he got him the Purple Heart. He had won it in the Battle of the Bulge. And I remember he came over to the house, and I came out, and he said, present it to him. Okay, we had the family there. You know, I, I think that one of the things that we have to understand is that we're dealing with someone who isn't just telling uh, lies that shade the truth in one direction or the other, or... In the old way of, of looking at Biden, the idea that he was just sort of telling big fish stories where he would take something that was fundamentally true and then he would just slightly exaggerate it. Uh, you know, that's something that a lot of politicians tend to do. They always are trying to make themselves look bigger and stronger and better. But so many of these incidents that Biden says repeatedly, not just in interviews, but on the campaign trail to huge audiences and the like over the years, are completely invented they're actually impossible. If you reconstruct the timelines in question, it doesn't line up at all, including people who died before he said that he did certain things for them while he was vice president, including you know him crossing certain mileage counts uh, when it came to use of Amtrak or use of, of uh, Air Force Two, uh, and then being complimented for it by people who had retired and then passed away before these things ever happened. And then, of course, when it comes to, you know, his own history, you know, the, the very first time that, you know, he was even introduced to people on the campaign trail and fell apart in those first hits, it was because he was not just, you know, inflating his own uh, achievements, inflating his own resume in ways that we're used to from politicians. 
he was stealing other people's stories about their own lives and repeating them as if they were his. It's a pretty amazing thing that this guy ever ended up in the presidency, given all of this. And yet, when it comes to our existing media, they are totally willing to look the other way, to pretend that this is not something that is a problem, to pretend that it is not indicative of maybe a more serious problem with Joe Biden than just the fact that he continues to tell these fictional made-up stories. And because of that, when they are blasting over and over again on their airwaves the idea that someone like George Santos uh, can't be seated as a member of Congress because, despite the fact that voters supported him. Uh, that just, to me, seems a, a, a complete uh, uh, indictment of their own approach to the way that they cover the different sides of the political aisle. Look, George Santos seems to me like an irresponsible uh, dude and someone who you know, clearly has fooled a lot of people over the course of his tenure. We'll see what he's like when he gets to Congress. But I'm sorry, I, I can't uh, believe that you actually have this level of outrage uh, for people who've invented all these things when you're still defending the guy who says that he got arrested trying to meet Nelson Mandela, something that literally never happened. I'm Ben Dominich. You are listening to Fox Across America, where, where I am your guest host in Jimmy Fallon's seat for the day. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to the best dad on the radio. Can't believe you forgot my birthday. You're with Jimmy Fallon on Fox Across America. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services Marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And we're back, Fox Across America, today I'm in the seat for Jimmy Fallon. I'm Ben Dominich. Happy to be with you today and hope you're all doing your best to recover from the holidays. Uh, we've been talking about George Santos, and we're going to talk uh, more about it with uh, John Levine of the New York Post. He is uh, uh, on Twitter at Levine Jonathan. Uh, he'll be coming up in the next segment. But before we get to that, I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit more about contrast and the way that the media covers certain things. You know, look, we all know about Joe Biden's history when it comes to inflating his resume and inventing things that didn't happen. 
insisting that they happened over and over and over again, uh, and eventually, in some cases, being forced to apologize or retract them. Uh, One thing in particular, though, that I think that we can all understand is how different approaches uh, are used when it comes to similar actions on his part. You probably are aware at this point that the president and his family are vacationing in St. Croix, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, It's a place that they've gone regularly before. Uh, He's uh, moved the whole family down there, and there's some pictures that have been posted online by uh, various media folks of of their arrival. Of course, this is coming at the same time that there is this massive uh, series of problems happening here at home thanks to a blizzard and snowstorms that have uh, killed more than 50 people uh, that have led to the snarling of all types of air travel. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, But just consider the difference in approach, the difference uh, in the way that the media talks about something like this, the Uh, the president of the United States going on vacation to a nice warm place uh, at the same time uh, that there's all sorts of major considerations back home and issues that have to be addressed, uh, issues that have to be addressed, of course, by the executive branch, by people like Pete Buttigieg and others. Compare that to the way that they covered it when someone who doesn't have executive responsibilities, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, went with his family to Cancun, Mexico, during the Texas ice storm. Uh, And, uh, you know, CNN and other places uh, covered it uh, this way. Senator Ted Cruz and his family flew to Cancun, Mexico, as a winter disaster in his home state of Texas left millions without power or water, according to photos posted on social media and confirmed to CNN by a person familiar with the travel itinerary. Compare that to, again, from CNN, President Joe Biden this week returns to St. Croix, one of his and First Lady Jill Biden's beloved vacation spots, seeking a final opportunity for rest before what is expected to be a contentious 2023 and re-election run. We all see what's going on. It's not a mystery. And they don't do any, uh, any of themselves a good job of hiding it anymore. They are completely and totally beholden to a partisan frame on all of these things where when a Republican takes his family on vacation, even if he has no direct responsibility over the state response uh, to a major weather event uh, and a president who they like goes on vacation, it's just a completely different approach. Look, these uh, these travel concerns are significant, uh, but I think that unfortunately we have a group of people in charge right now uh, who we simply can't trust uh, to be responsible when it comes to delivering on any of the different changes and shifts that need to be done. Let's listen to cut twenty-seven. I mean, cut seventeen from Pete Buttigieg. Well, meltdown is the right word. This is an unacceptable situation. Bottom line is uh, the rest of the aviation system has been on the road to recovery since the worst days of the storm going into Friday of last week. As of today, as I'm looking at the different airlines, most of them are in the low single digits in terms of cancellation rates, uh, averaging, averaging about 5% for all of the other airlines. Uh, for Southwest right now, we appear to be north of 70%. So th- their system uh, really has completely melted down. And I've made clear that uh, our department will be holding them accountable for their responsibilities to customers, uh, both to get them through this situation and to make sure that this can't happen again. Look, I just want to point out something here. Pete Buttigieg is held up by the same media, the same biased media uh, that uh, participates in all of these different stories in ways that are designed to run interference for Democrats. He's held up by them as being a potential chief executive, a potential future president of the United States. Uh, They talk about how intelligent and bright he is, how capable he is and the like. And yet, is it just me 
ever since he's taken over as uh, in his role um, as head of the transportation department, haven't things just gotten worse? We've had rail strikes. We've had uh, all of these different problems when it comes to the airlines. We just don't have any sign of competence. And that's because people in the media don't actually care about competence anymore. They just care about their team winning, and that means Democrats. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be back with more with John Levine right after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Dominich. Jimmy Fallon is out doing whatever crazy things Jimmy does this time of year. I'm sure that we'll find out and have some great laughs over uh, whoever has to go and bail him out. Uh, and I'm happy to be joined right now by John Levine, who is a reporter for the New York Post, uh, someone who you can follow on Twitter at Levine Jonathan, as I do myself. Uh, John, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having me. Ben, no one's going to have to bail him out. This is New York. We don't have bail anymore. <laughs> going to walk out of jail. No That's problem. a great point. That's a great point. But, you know, he'll find a way. I believe in Jimmy. He'll find a way yeah. to test the boundaries yeah, right. of that. <laughs> He's an amazing man. Uh, so, John, I, I know that you have been paying attention to this crazy story with George Santos, and I wanted to get your perspective on it. I think a lot of people have the assumption that, you know, people like this, they get looked at by parties. They get looked at by the media. Someone will tell us if there's something, you know, untoward or missing or, or uh, false on their resume, that kind of thing. Uh, and yet that didn't happen in this case. Why didn't it happen? Well, it's, you know, it's tough. The midterms, there was a lot of races to look at. And we had in New York, everyone was looking at the governor's race, really. Mm -hmm. That was where all of the attention of the New York press was. You know, when it comes to Santos, I know that the DCCC did an opposition research book where they – a number of things in the book were things that ultimately came out. But the serialness of how so many different things were lies and piecing together that it wasn't just one misstatement but really a much more systemic pattern, that's what everyone missed before the election. And you know, Santos didn't have a primary challenger, and, and, and that's true in – 2020 when he ran and 2022 in 2020 that was a, you know no one thought he would beat Swazi nobody was looking too close into that but in this race it was a real race and I can tell you on very good authority as he had when he wrapped up the nomination the Republicans you know knew about him Republicans knew there were a lot of stuff with him that didn't add up but what you know at that point you can't do anything he's already the nominee so they just kind of sat on it and were sort of just let the chips fall where they may. And they were quite surprised that it never came out. <laughs> now he's in Congress. And here we are. You know, one of the things that is so funny about this is that, you know, in this wasn't a wave election, obviously, in the way that Republicans expected. But one of the things that does happen when you have the kind of success 
that you saw Republicans have in a state like New York is that some random people end up winning. And sometimes right. they're, they're people who haven't been as thoroughly vetted uh, as people might ex- expect. You know, he's obviously, you know, getting pressure from all the normal sources. CNN and MSNBC uh, have uh, been, you know, running things nonstop this morning, uh, going after him and, and uh, you know, assume, uh, uh, calling for him to step down or something like that. But my assumption is that Republicans are going to stand lockstep with him, you know, especially considering that, you know, as much as this is embarrassing, it's not like he didn't win. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you got to there's a lot of smoke and there's a lot of effort to stir up a lot of dust about what the story is here. He lied about, I guess, working at Goldman Sachs. He lied about graduating college. He lied about being Jewish. You know, he lied about personal details. None of those things are a crime. You know, Elizabeth Warren lied about being a Cherokee Indian for most of her career and built herself as the first Native American university professor at Harvard. You know, is she resigning over that? No. Richard Blumenthal lied about Mm -hmm. serving in the Vietnam War. You know, is stolen valor something that you resign over? Apparently not either. You know, what what Santos has right now is stolen yuppie. He's like, (laughs) he's impersonating. (laughs) He's impersonating a Wall Street fat cat when he's apparently not, but not a crime. Now, if it veers into criminal territory, there's still the question of where his money comes from. There's still the question of some very... There's some weirdness on his federal election disclosures, you know, mm-hmm. then it's a different story. But right now, nothing at all that's resignable. And most importantly, he's a safe vote for Kevin McCarthy, who needs every single vote he can get now. Mm-hmm. So no you pressure know, coming from there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that this would, uh, circumstance might be different if you had the kind of majority that a lot of Republicans had hoped that they would get. Um, but uh, given how close things really are, I assume that they're going to stick by him. Talk to me a little bit, though, about the, the hypocrisy here, because I think this is such an obvious point. You know, he obviously inflated his resume, inflated his personal story, et cetera. But we have a president who does that on a regular basis, on a right. know, weekly, sometimes daily basis, you know, invents these stories about himself and his, his past experiences that he had. You know, the, the Nelson Mandela is one is my personal favorite just because it's just so obviously false, and yet he keeps telling it. Or all, he, he almost told it to Drew Barrymore just the other day. And, yeah, uh, it's and amazing. I, I don't know if you have a favorite, but it's one of these things where, you know, we, we have this guy in the White House right now who has a much bigger problem with this thing. I, my favorite, actually, is where he claimed he hit a home run at a congressional baseball game. That is a great one. That's Nobody great remembers. One. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's very hard to pick a favorite because there's so many whoppers. And it's incredible how the media – I think the New York Times, even I think like even six weeks ago, did a story, mm-hmm. and it was something to the effect of, well, Biden's occasional embellishments sometimes veer into, into mystery, into falsehoods. And I think they called it folksiness. <laughs> and it was like, oh, sweet Grandpa Joe occasionally goes off script. It's like it isn't just they're, – they're trying to sort of just, oh, it's senility. It's not senility. He's been doing this his whole career. Yes, he's, if, he's, it's a very good shell game to be, oh, it's Grandpa Joe is just, you know, he's doing like a – you know, just going off again. But it's not. Yeah. I mean it's the, it's the old Abe Simpson thing. It's the onion in your belt story, you yeah, know. They're, uh, they're so, trying to Grandpa <laughs> Simpson it when it's much more pathological. Oh, yeah. And and the thing, the thing that is, you know, obviously untrue too is that – you know, in in so many instances, these are stories that uh, go directly to things that he did or he claims to have done while he was vice president or while he was in the U.S. Senate. And then, of course, you look into them and and they all fall apart. 
So it's not like it's, you know, some, in other words, corn pop is funny, but corn pop doesn't really bother me, you know, in the sense that uh, it's so, it's so ancient and it's so irrelevant to his uh, political story. But when it, when you are telling these lies about your own political experience in, in so many aggressive ways, it's a very big problem. And to me, you know, that's the sort of thing to look back at Santos. We'll see what he's like when he actually gets to Congress. Because, and I think because, that's going to be the standard. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, we, we people have sort of banked in the idea that all politicians lie. Um, but I think that they are more willing to, you know, sort of forgive people if it's if it's resume embellishment uh, versus people who, you know, are lying once they get into the job of doing uh, the task for the American people who elected them. Uh, so when it comes to the attitude of New York Republicans toward George Santos, is it all just kind of eye rolling at this point that they're just like, well, that happened. I mean, it's not great. Like, he's facing some – I know, like, the Republican Jewish coalition has barred him from coming back. And, his, you know, Long Island went all Republican this year, mm-hmm. all four seats. Santos was part of that wave. I know that a number of the newly elected Republicans, like Lelota, have come out with statements condemning him. And it's not – you haven't seen – you know, I, I expected a lot of silence, but you're actually seeing negative statements coming out. You know, there's, I, I've always had a saying, only your own side can cancel you. Yeah. You can never be canceled by the other side. Like, you know, the liberal media can, can hem and haw about Santos Ferrer, but it's only when your own side starts turning on you that you actually, it starts, the wheels start to come off. So Al Franken again, learned that the very hard way, yes. Right. So, again, <laughs> there's no real danger before January 3rd and the leadership vote, but there will be, I mean, I think some kind of house and ethics probe is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Letitia James, our attorney general, one of the most partisan state attorney generals in the country, definitely is going to start looking under the hood of everything he said, particularly with the fake charity. Mm-hmm. If there's anything there, I mean, there, he's a lot of people are looking. And if there is illegality found, then it's going to get much harder, for him, mm-hmm. I think. You know, we'll we'll see where these things uh, lead. He didn't do a good job uh, for himself the other night when Tulsi was uh, putting him. Uh, putting him right in the crosshairs. Uh, and I, I think that there is a possibility that, as you say, something uh, could turn into something more significant down the road. And at that point, uh, the party will have to assess what to do about it. Uh, John Levine, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Uh, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, too, Ben. Take care. You can follow Jonathan uh, Levine on Twitter at Levine Jonathan. He's a reporter for The New York Post. I'm Ben Dominic. You are listening to Fox Across America. I'm not Jimmy Fallon, but I'm happy to be joining you today as your guest host uh, and guiding you through all of these different storylines. We'll be back with more right after this. It's the show that leaves you hungry for more. We'll probably sit around and cook some soup, eat bread and desserts, and just get all fat and sassy. This is Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your guest host today, Ben Dominich, in Jimmy Fallon's seat for the next couple of hours. And I wanted to uh, just uh, close out this hour by talking a little bit about uh, what this year has meant for so many different people. You know, 2022 was a really hard year, I think, for many Americans. We're still dealing with the ramifications of uh, COVID policies that were frankly ill-thought and not really interested in uh, the long term that didn't really put the needs 
of uh, the citizens that we have first that didn't certainly put the needs of the kids that we have in our communities first. When it comes to the school closures and the like uh, that uh, were maintained for so long and that uh, you know have been continually pushed for by teachers unions that put their own interests and their ability to frankly hold kids education hostage in order to try to extract more money from uh, the government is really uh, a disappointing and terrible uh, thing that we're going to have to look back on and remember for the mistakes that so many different adults made uh, that put so many children far behind when it came to their education and their ability uh, to just function in a normal society. Uh, And one of the things that I'm really concerned about, considering the leadership that we currently have uh, in Washington, concerning the leadership that we have in the White House, uh, and the degree to which we've politicized uh, our CDC, our FDA, uh, and our HHS, uh, that we are going to continue to see the kind of top-down recommendations from the federal government that are going to be used in blue states governed by blue leadership to essentially uh, keep us in a rotating experience of permanent pandemic and and lockdown. It's going to be something that I think is, uh, unfortunately, what we're going to have to live with for the next couple of years. It's an immediate ramification to uh, the fact that Republicans, as much as they've been able to take you know, control of the House of Representatives, as much as they've been able to kind of hold the line in certain respects, that they still are not uh, in any kind of majority that allows them to affirmatively pass the kind of steps that need to be taken. I was reading uh, just the other day uh, the frustration expressed uh, by uh, Rochelle Walensky at the CDC about bipartisan steps that were being pushed forward uh, by uh, Patty Murray uh, on the Democratic side and by Richard Burr on the Republican side in the U.S. Senate uh, that would allow for a more uh, political process when it comes to naming heads of the CDC uh, people in her position. And the fact that she would push back against that and basically uh, you know, say that we need to double down on the authority, the limitless authority of bureaucrats to run our lives and to make the kind of recommendations that, again, have a trickle-down property that are used on the state and local level in order to uh, reassert things uh, that, frankly, we've learned based on uh, enormous levels of medical evidence uh, that they simply do not have any kind of effectiveness in in terms of battling uh, COVID or anything else. This whole triple-demic push that uh, Walensky has uh, engaged in on uh, the airwaves across the country in recent weeks, you know, talking about these things as if they are, uh, you know, once again, uh, demand an emergency posture from the government. These are the ways that people are going to continue to try to manipulate Americans in order to uh, respond to their wishes. And when those Americans don't respond, they're going to engage in much further mandates and crackdowns, uh, lockdowns, and try to exact pain where they uh, where they can in order to force them to do the thing that they want them to do. I think it's incumbent upon all of us as Americans to push back against this, to be aware of what our media is doing, to be aware of what the dominant authorities within our bureaucracy are doing and are going to continue to do. And when you hear about these types of, of reports from you know people who are you know within uh, significant positions uh, funded by the taxpayers, you need to understand that they no longer believe that they work for you in any capacity. They believe that it's your job to just obey 
to do what they tell you to do, regardless of whether they have done this, you know, hundreds of times before, and then only afterwards learn we learned that the you know things that they engaged in were either utterly ineffective, or in many ways they actually uh, you know did the opposite of what they were t- attempting to do. They had uh, more damaging effects uh, than they did beneficial ones, and so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to really stand up against that, to be aware of it, uh, to respond to it, and to speak out when we see it coming down. To just say. We're not going to do this thing. We're, things are not uh, in, going to be the way that they used to be. We are not going to just assume that your expertise is uh, is one that outranks the expertise of others. We're not going to assume that you have all the answers, and we're not going to assume that a lockdown-based approach, that a you know closing schools, that a you know uh, mandating masks, that a uh, you know sort of a major push to try to get uh, kids to take uh, vaccines at, at earlier and earlier ages when it comes to COVID are going to have the kind of effects that you're promising us that they will. And I think that one of the things that, frankly, is, uh, I believe, a silver lining coming out of all of this is that Americans, I think, are going to reassert their role as being directors of their own fates and directors of their children's fates when it comes to the way that they raise them and when it comes to the way that they live. Certainly, we've seen that happen within the educational construct where there is more freedom. But I think one of the biggest examples of this happened in recent weeks when it came to the White House continuing to push back uh, against uh, those on Capitol Hill, a bipartisan majority, by the way, that were in favor of getting rid of the vaccination mandate for members of the military. They've seen the ramifications of that. They've seen the negative, uh, the downside of it when it comes to the experience of, of members of our military who just want to serve. Uh, and uh, I think that you know it was a very positive development to see that kind of bipartisan majority on Capitol Hill push back against a White House uh, that once again was out there saying, you know, well, you know, these members of Congress, they just they uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre saying uh, they care more you know, about uh, getting their own way than about the, the health of these of these military individuals, uh, which is, of course, absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Now, we do need to be mindful, though, that when we uh, when we see these things come down, we need to, I think, speak with a bit more grace when it comes to uh, the efforts of these bureaucrats to try to manage our lives. And what do I mean by that? I just mean let's not demonize them all. Uh, they simply, I think, really are uh, completely in the wrong direction. They're completely in the wrong when it comes to their priority list, and they completely ignore all of the different evidence that conflicts with what they'd like to achieve. But they're also still Americans, and I think that they still actually are, for the most part, motivated with uh, you know the American mindset of wanting to try to save the most lives of their fellow citizens. They're just heading in the wrong direction, and they're doubling down on the same misbegotten policies that they tried the last time around that didn't work, that won't work, and that will never work. And until they understand that shifts have happened in our American experience where we no longer invest in them the faith that we once did, they're going to continue to try to do that. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be back with more with the second hour right after this. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. Welcome back to Fox Across America. I'm your host for today, Ben Dominich, in Jimmy Fallon's seat. He is out there causing trouble somewhere. 
If you see a man running around setting things on fire in your backyard, it's probably just Jimmy. He's probably just trying to stay warm. I am looking back at a list of things that happened in 2022 in the world of politics. And, man, a lot of stuff happened that was very, very bad. Uh, and, you know, look, I'm, I don't think that's news to any of you. You've seen what's happening on our southern border, what's continued to be uh, a major crisis that, is, uh, that has come and uh, is completely ignored by those in the White House and in positions of authority to do anything about it. Uh, and with their uh, aid and abetting in the media generally, uh, they have gotten away with ignoring the major problems and the historic highs of migrants pouring across our southern border, as our own Bill Malugin has covered. You know, I went down to uh, Eagle Pass uh, earlier this year in order to see what was happening there uh, firsthand. Uh, it had been a, quite a while since I'd been to the uh, southern border uh, in a major hot spot like that. Uh, I've gone many times over the years. Uh, I went and uh, surveyed the whole thing from uh, Brownsville to El Paso and back again uh, over the years. And it's one of the things that I think uh, everyone should be required to do. It's kind of amazing that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, avoid it so studiously when it comes to uh, the issue in question. One of the things that I think is is really rele- re- revelatory about this is that you know, these are very tiny communities for the most part, uh, communities that don't have the kind of infrastructure necessary to support the influx of thousands of people all at once. And so, you know, you may see those images of, of people pouring across uh, as being something that, that looks horrible, but you don't really know what to do anything about. Well, the people who are down there, they don't know what to do about it either. Uh, all they can really do is stick them on a bus, send them somewhere that uh, may or may not get them actual help. You'll have all these NGOs that uh, are funded with taxpayer dollars and uh, private donations as well that are supposed to take care of them. But, you know, for the most part, uh, they just are, are getting shipped around uh, in ways that are absolutely terrible for them. And so when you saw uh, this kind of, of uh, incident that was happening earlier this year, uh, whether at the behest of Governor Greg Abbott or the behest of, of Florida's Ron DeSantis, uh, to send migrants to other parts of the country just to send a message – uh, and the reaction from those local officials uh, that was completely over the top and and saying, you know, that, you know, this is uh, going to strain us. This is going to, you know, put us in a horrible position. We're not able to deal with all of the people who are here. And it's like, welcome to the party, pal. I mean, this is what the experience has been for people in Eagle Pass, you know, for uh, a very long time. And it's going to only continue, unfortunately, uh, in the coming years without any kind of change in policy. Uh, this border crisis is something that, you know, you uh, cannot really deal with in a patchwork manner. You have to actually have a comprehensive solution for it that deals with all of its different aspects. Uh, and yet that's exactly what this government has been doing under Joe Biden, because if they were going to actually take a comprehensive approach, it would require them to do a lot of things that progressives would be mad at them for, because frankly, they would look a lot like what happened under the previous presidency. That's something that they just can't come to grips with. Uh, and yet it's also something that unfortunately is putting uh, the lives of all of these different migrants and, of course, those who are guarding our borders at risk in serious ways that, frankly, uh, are anathema to me. I mean, it's it's one of these things that I, I just don't understand why we can't get it through the heads of people who are in Washington or the Acela Corridor who uh, really do, you know, have these these fanciful ideas about the way that immigration happens on the southern border. 
that they need to actually have a solution for this problem. And until they do, that this chaos is only going to continue to hurt their political cause. And the reason I say that is that as much as you might say that you know uh, Democrats want to have this heavy influx of people uh, because they want to change the electorate or they want to change the nation uh, in, in terms of its makeup in different respects, I actually think that this level of chaos is something that only makes people more suspicious of the side that claims to be in favor of immigration and of immigrants, you know, because these are the people, you know, when, when they're coming across, they are victims too. They, they are being trafficked by these cartels. They are spending every dime that they have in order to get across. You know, many of them uh, are bad people, but they also are desperate people. And they're trying to get across because they think that they can find work and a better life here than they have in their existing countries. And they're probably right about that. Uh, But, of course, what ends up happening, you end up having to raise taxes in order to pay for them. They get put on these permanent welfare programs uh, that don't actually do a good job. You know, they end up in, uh, you know, going from community to community and never really adapting to uh, the nature of the communities that they're in. And I think that what you're going to see over time uh, is that this is going to turn into something that I think is going to be a really generational failure on the part of our political leadership. You know, the, the fact is that the last 10 years that we've experienced when it comes to immigration uh, and migrants on the southern border has been one that has dramatically increased the funding that is going to the cartels from this level of trafficking. It's dramatically increased the, the flow of drugs into America, the fentanyl that is, uh, that is completely devastating communities across the country. And it's done so in ways uh, that I think are deeply irresponsible, that demand uh, a response from any kind of of serious uh, uh, approach from a political standpoint, a policy standpoint. And yet none of the people that we currently have in leadership are doing that. Why are they looking away? Why are they not able to actually approach this with the level of seriousness that it demands? Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that they're stuck in a very old way of thinking about these issues. They still think, I think on the part of a number of Republicans, that if they stress the immigration issue, that in some way it's going to turn off Hispanic voters. That simply isn't the case. And you don't just have to look to uh, uh, Donald Trump's success with winning Hispanic votes uh, in order to make the case for that. The fact is that Hispanic voters who are here, who are here legally, um, are abs- absolutely abhor the kind of images that they see uh, and, uh, you know, frankly, are not interested uh, in policies that are designed to have a porous border. At the same time, I think that there are a lot of Democrats who use the same type of talking points that they've been using since the Bush era, when this was a story that had to do mostly with migrant workers who were male, who were younger, who were trying to just come here, find work, and then send money back home. That's not the case anymore. These are families. These are people with young kids, many of whom are getting uh, treated horribly during the trafficking process. Uh, they're being raped. They're being abused. Uh, and, you know, this is a, the type of thing that is is absolutely abhorrent and should be an indictment of our current political leadership. But unfortunately, I don't think that you're going to have any kind of change in that until you have a change in leadership that is generational. It's something I talk about a lot. But I think that this younger generation of people who understand how much the border has changed, how much it's different than it was in the early 2000s when you had talk of guest worker packages and the like that could potentially have solved some of those problems. The the fact is that this is a completely different environment now. It's a completely different circumstance and one 
that demands uh, a much higher level of resources in order to secure the border, in order to prevent these uh, types of crossings, uh, and in order to discourage people from coming here in the way that they have. Uh, And by the way, I've seen over and over again people act as if the things that are said by Joe Biden, by Kamala Harris, and by other Democratic officials, that that's something that doesn't really translate. It absolutely translates. It's as if they think that people south of the border don't read the news, that they don't see the headlines. They can tell what's going on over here, and they can understand the different avenues and the different uh, openings that they have in order to gain passage to this country. And they're going to make use of that information. It's as if uh, people assume that they don't have the Internet down there. It's ridiculous. Uh, it's the same way that they seem surprised when, you know, public reporting about various things, uh, you know, was read by ISIS or al-Qaeda back in the day uh, and definitely had an impact on the way that they responded to the different moves that we made, uh, you know, from uh, the perspective of Western policy. Look, people absolutely read these things, and then they use those things in order to convince uh, various families that they need to sell everything that they own in order to give the cartel all of their money in order to make it in time before things shut down. And that's the type of thing that they are doing repeatedly. And it's having a major impact, you know, not just here, but on, uh, you know, the other side of the border when it comes to chaos, when it comes to the ways that the cartels uh, continue to use the existing uh, frigid and and, and incapable political regimes to uh, their benefits. And unfortunately, I think it's not going to change anytime soon particularly under this White House. We're going to have to wait through, I think, a very difficult period where this problem only continues uh, before you have the White House willing to reengage in Trump-era policies that, frankly, as much as they dislike them on the left, actually worked. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be back with more right after this. The show that loves you like a sibling. We'll always be brothers. It's Fox Across America with brother Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your guest host for today, Ben Dominich. You can follow me on Twitter at BDominich. I'm the editor-at-large at The Spectator and a contributor to Fox News. And I'm also a friend of Jimmy, which means, of course, I'm deeply concerned about what kind of terrible things he's probably going to get himself involved in with his time off. Uh, Again, you know, if you see anyone setting fire to anything in your backyard, it's just Jimmy trying to stay warm. Uh, So just keep him in your sympathies and in your thoughts. Uh, And while John Levine in the last uh, hour pointed out that you don't have bail in in New York anymore, so we don't need to take up any kind of of collection to try to support Jimmy and, and bail him out of whatever trouble he gets into, I'm sure he will find a way himself to navigate through that. I wanted to keep uh, talking a little bit about uh, one thing that happened in politics in 2022, something that I think we need to keep in mind because it's somehow uh, kind of uh, gotten on the back burner of our conversation. And that's, of course, uh, the the decision on the part of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. This took over the conversation for a time. You know, it seemed to surprise a lot of people that, you know, you had – Uh, that type of decision come down from the court. But we, of course, got an early look at it thanks to a leaker, uh, someone who has yet to be identified as a member of the Supreme Court staff or someone, you know, who perhaps was a clerk. And uh, we still have no kind of information about what happened in that case. That's a deep concern. And it's something that we shouldn't forget about because 
it enabled, obviously, you know, not just the kind of reaction that we saw from the left when it came to, you know, their, you know, uh, protest in the streets and in front of uh, the the homes of various justices. It also allowed for the targeting of justices, the intention on the part of, of people across, you know, uh, social media, including one individual who was ultimately arrested, uh, to perhaps alter uh, the ultimate vote, the ultimate decision by murdering one of the justices. It put their lives at risk uh, in a way that, you know, we had never seen before in terms of American politics. And for the institution of the court to have that type of thing happen, an institution where, you know, notoriously it's one of the few uh, areas of American life where both sides still generally trust each other and uh, and do not, you know, have the kind of animosity that we see on Capitol Hill or, or in other areas uh, where, you know, you can have different justices who are on opposite ideological sides who nonetheless still get along and have friendships and socialize together and trust each other. This is a situation where clearly someone who was connected to one of these justices or connected to the institution of the court made a decision that put their lives at risk in a very devious and horrible way. Now, I have gotten used to, you know, not getting the answers to all these different things that we want to get answers for. We all want to know whether COVID came from a lab leak or not. We all would like to know what the heck that Las Vegas shooter was ever doing. We all would like to know more about the real details of January 6th, uh, details that unfortunately the January 6th committee was not interested in doing at all, since it was just a partisan effort on the part of Liz Cheney to work through whatever she's been going through over the past several years. But I think that one of the things that we need to understand is that this court situation, this leaking of an opinion, it may be the first time that this has happened, but it probably won't be the last. What is the next significant opinion? It's going to be released in a certain way like this, perhaps, you know, to the same types of journalists that got were able to get access to it the first time around. What will be the ramifications of, of such a decision? You know, how will it play into, you know, the way people view the court? And especially if the decision ends up being different than the one in fundamentally that fundamentally ends up as the opinion of the court, what will people take away from that process? Look, we didn't know for sure that this was going to be the opinion that ultimately was released. Now, of course, as it turned out, it essentially resembled that uh, that initial draft, you know, very closely. But if we had had the kind of situation where, you know, the votes change around and there's a different conclusion reached, uh, then I think a lot of people would say, hey, the pressure campaign worked. You know, let's make sure that we do this type of thing again. Let's threaten the lives of justices and their families and their children again. And, you know, for, for people who live outside of the Washington, D.C. area and who are not familiar with uh, the way that these people live their lives, the truth is that, you know, politicians don't tend to walk around with security guards surrounding them at all times. They don't tend to have families who have those types of security risks uh, either. You know, and while there's exceptions to that, of course, if you're a very controversial person or if your family has received significant or real threats, uh, then things will change. But the fact is that, you know, if you are a general, you know, member of a lot of different areas of our political life, including very important people, you just don't travel with that kind of security surrounding you at all uh, at all times. And you particularly don't if you're the child of such a politician. We have to take this type of risk seriously. I do not think that we have the kind of answers that we deserve out of what happened with that decision and what happened with this release. And I, f- I think, frankly, that it is uh, uh, completely unconscionable that at this 
point, at the end of the year, we still don't have answers to such a deeply important question about the way that our process works. Imagine, if you will, a, a similar situation to what played out in Bush versus Gore, where the Supreme Court had to weigh in repeatedly on significant matters that ultimately would have an impact on who the next president of the United States was coming out of the, the challenges that were being put in place uh, by Al Gore in Florida. Ultimately, obviously, you know, in the in the Bush v. Gore decision, uh, the decision was made to you know stop the count where it was. Uh, that there was not, you know, going to be a, a difference made up in what was uh, remaining outstanding in terms of the vote, uh, and we ended up with the presidency of George W. Bush by the slimmest of margins. If something like that were to happen again, and people have taken the lesson away that these members of the Supreme Court can be intimidated that they can be moved by the fact that you know people are in front of their houses or identify them with a pin dropped on a map that they share on social media, or that they can identify the schools that their children go to and have a real impact in the decisions that they make, I can only imagine what kind of terrible things could result from a situation like that. So of all the unanswered questions about our politics from 2022, I put to you that what we all deserve in the coming year is a real answer about who leaked the Roe v. Wade Dobbs decision ahead of time. Because if, if we don't have that answer, then I think it definitely will happen again. One more note on this. The Dobbs decision may have been a political factor in the 2022 midterms, but there isn't a single pro-life American that I know, Republican, Democrat, or Independent, who wouldn't be in favor of that decision again today. They simply don't care in the way that the, the political consultants or the political class or the media do uh, about the negative ramifications politically for the Republican Party or for the challenges that this presents uh, to people who have to navigate the new abortion politics in America. They've been working for this result their entire lives, and everyone who favored getting rid of Roe v. Wade is happy because of it. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm your guest host today, Ben Domenech. We will be back with more right after this. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host, Ben Domenech, coming to you and talking to you about the year that 2022 was, and particularly the year that it was when it comes to politics. And joining me now is my friend Chris Bedford. You can follow him on Twitter, at CBedfordDC. He is the executive editor of the Common Sense Society magazine. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Great to be with you, Ben. So in 2022, obviously, we had a lot of different storylines. We had the, the COVID storyline. We had the border storyline. We had high gas prices. We had uh, baby formula shortages. We had all these different candidates that Republicans put their hopes in, uh, most of whom did not deliver uh, on the midterm election night. What are some of the big storylines that stuck out to you from politics in 2022? Well, I think beyond politics, you kind of touched on it there with the baby formula shortage and with other shortages that we've seen with the fluctuating costs in meat, with the fact that you could walk into a a, a food stand and see that the chicken fingers were market price, like you might see for oysters or for <laughs> lobster or something like that. And this is this 
2022 was the first year, I think, after COVID where where the cracks in the system were really becoming obvious. The, the fact that I mean, everyone in the United States had just largely sent their kids to school over the past 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, thinking that they were going to get a good education. They've gone to the grocery store expecting the, the, the shelves to be stocked. They've, they've bought things from abroad expecting that the shipments wouldn't be stuck out in, in the harbor for months and months at a time. They've, they've simply expected that the experts and the way things were would always work and everything would be fine. And these, these last couple of years, especially since COVID, have exposed how much is broken. It reminds me of that great essay from 2020, I think, called Everything is Broken, that goes into the problems we had in the medical field. But the American people are looking around, and we can't count on these basic things anymore. And Washington politicians are still going back and forth arguing about inflation, which is hitting people for real, a taxation policy, and this and that. But no, very few of them are actually talking about the deep fissures, the deep problems in the American system. And I think the consumer and the average person are starting to become aware of it. I mean, just a couple of years ago, you talk, you'd maybe come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving, and no matter how bad things were politically, you'd hear relatives say, well, don't worry, it's a pendulum, it'll swing back. And of course, that was never true. And finally, I think that that optimism, that don't worry, it's all going to be better, has gone away, which is, you know, not a great uh, between Christmas and New Year's message, but at least people being awake is an important change of this last year. You know, I, I think that you're dead on with that. And one of the examples that I think, you know, we have to deal with or reckon with is that you know, sometimes uh, we've gotten used to, I think, uh, in problem situations in the past, the idea that the mob could kind of appeal to Washington and have some muddled solution offered on their behalf but now I don't think that they feel that way anymore. I think instead they feel like they're screaming into the void. You know, whether it becomes the, you know to an issue like baby formula, uh, or more recently, you know, there's been this issue with the hoarding of of children's Tylenol and limits being placed in Walgreens and CVS at Kroger and and other places on the number of of pain relief for children purchases that you can make when you go, where you can only buy you know two bottles or the like. Uh, which you know, for a family of multiple kids, you know that's that's a very quickly run through in terms of the the season around you know the holidays uh, as as kids just inevitably uh, bring home all manner of disease. And so, for people who are struggling with that type of situation, they kind of look around and say, "Wait a minute, what's happening?" Because if you know, even if you had problems with who the president was, you know, whether it was George W. Bush or Barack Obama, whether whether it was Trump or or even you know, uh, I think you know a lot of people thought that Joe Biden was going to bring some kind of sense of normalcy when they voted for him. But I think that in the opposite has happened. They actually feel how abnormal things are, that you walk into a store and you feel like the, you know these shelves are, are empty, and they were empty the last time I was here too. Uh, and for very basic things that you buy over and over and over again if you have a family. Uh, and so I guess my question to you is, what can we do about something like that? And, and why aren't our leaders talking about that? Uh, as opposed to, you know, you know, once again, you know, we saw Mitch McConnell come out and said the number one priority for Republicans is funding for Ukraine. You know, and I think that that's just, you know, fundamentally that's not true. But even if you are in favor of funding for Ukraine, you care a lot more about whether you can take care of your family and whether your kid uh, can actually have Tylenol or not. Yeah, but funding for Ukraine is easy. Uh, just mm -hmm. tinkering around the edges of tax policy is easy. Uh, 
the Democrats just passed an, an anti-lynching law. It's <laughs> yes. like lynchings are still going on. That okay? That's easy. Who's going to yeah. vote against that? Uh, it's really difficult to solve the actual problems. I think you know, there's a, a Republican senator I like actually, Senator Kennedy, and he said one of the I think one of the more incorrect things I've I've heard, and it kind of sums up the Republican thing, which is he said the fundamentals of our economy are fine. The fundamentals of this country are fine. It's just bad politics, and that's just fundamentally not true. We've had we've had decades of a financial class and the political class selling out a working class and an industrial class for a buck, and it's hollowed out the country and it's invited in swaths of drugs and suicide and despair and broken families. Uh, the fundamentals are extremely difficult. These are things that we actually have to talk about. I mean, take Pete Buttigieg for example. That's just the supply chain. Uh, mm-hmm. You shouldn't know who the Secretary of Transportation really is unless he's screwing up. Pete Buttigieg has been screwing up so badly that there are just supply chain crises in trucking and, and getting fuel and, and diesel and, and, and shipping all up and down. But there's like not really anyone who's sitting there saying Pete Buttigieg solved it because no one actually thinks he could. Uh, <laughs> it would actually take some more visionary leadership. I mean Pete Buttigieg claims to be on uh, maternity leave for, for the first crisis. But I wasn't even that upset. One, I'm kind of suspicious of the whole thing. But two, I don't think he would have been able to do anything had he been there because he yeah. completely is in over his head. <laughs> there are a couple of politicians that are out there that are starting to talk about it. But it's the politicians on this matter are going to follow the people because they have you have to make hard calls. You can't just go out there and say uh, Taiwan should be free from China to actually deal with their economic threats going on here. You have to you have to go deeper, and it's and the easy. Democratic, liberal, conservative, Republican responses just don't cut it. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that we have to reckon with, too, is that in so many of these areas, we're, we're dealing with people who are very, very insulated from the experience of life that most Americans have, uh, meaning that, you know, they they just are operating at a remove. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that we saw you know, in prior years when it came to the, you know, idiocy of defunding the police or something along those lines, it's because they don't have that kind of experience in their community. You know, when we talk about uh, the the border crisis, for instance, you know, and we see the reaction uh, from Martha's Vineyard or from, you know, New York politicians uh, when people are shipped up uh, from the border and they respond, you know, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. We can't deal with this many people uh, when it's usually the number of people that have been, you know, uh, coming across in the last 48 hours or so for a lot of these small communities in Texas. How can we have a political class that is actually more in touch with what people and uh, have as the, uh, their priorities and concerns, as opposed to what they are told by Washington lobbyists and by their own paid consultants as to what those concerns ought to be. You know, you, your, your story there just reminds me of when J.D. Vance wrote his book, Hillbilly Elegy, and you could get it out. You could get it at Coke conferences. It was handed out by Democrats, handed out by Republicans. And a lot of folks in this country just looked at them and said, hey, this is a great book. But did you really have no idea what it was like for poor white America? <laughs> like, did you actually yes. – like, this is how poor people live. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> There's a huge amount of dysfunction. And these people thought he was a prophet. He was describing what had existed for years and years and years if you just opened mm-hmm. your eyes. Um and, you know, there are folks out there like Al Sharpton, who I think correctly from the beginning of the defund the police movement was calling those folks latte liberals who had no idea what it was like. And everyone acted really surprised when crime came up. I think I think in order to get these politicians who are willing to actually change things, and actually I'm glad that J.D. Vance is entering the Senate for this reason, you need politicians who 
look at this in a more radical way. Uh, the Democrats are very good at electing politicians who are here to make a difference. They're activists. They're, they're willing to throw their careers on the line. They want to change this country. Republicans generally elect politicians who want to put a cap on their career, want to get uh, have a good reason to have an oil painting above the fireplace. They mm-hmm. would like new access. It's, it's, it's a status thing, and they like to take their majority and put it on the mantle and say, don't touch it. It's beautiful there. Uh, you need people who aren't simply trying to conserve what has been, because so much of what currently is is just Potemkin villages. So much is there's so much rot behind the facade. You need folks who are radicals, folks who look at this country the same way that the radical left look at the country in the teens and the twenties and said, "This is a country that we fundamentally disagree with how it's run. We think the values are misaligned. We think that, uh, and we want to change everything." Now, the left at that point had some control over small amounts of the university systems. They had the Woodrow Wilson and some of the bureaucracies. They had a little bit of movement in the unions. But in general, they were in control of nothing. And within 50, 60 years, they started the fundamental transformation. But they, they looked at it that way. They, they said, we are on the outside looking in. We want to bring back this country. We can't just simply hold up the Federalist Papers or read, read the Constitution on the House floor like Kevin McCarthy's going to do. Nice sentiments, fine, but that's not going to change anything mm-hmm. if half the country ignores it and then the Republicans ignore it if it means more money in their pockets. Uh, we need to look at this as a more radical problem and, and have politicians who will speak honestly to it, which is why I was enjoying the candidacy of Blake Masters, want to see what he's doing next. That's why I'm Liking what J.D. Vance is going to be doing, he's made some really smart hires for folks who are really disruptive. And that's why, well, you know, at the end of the day, he's still just my favorite oligarch. Guys like Elon Musk taking the chair and throwing it out the mansion window and saying, hey, everything you thought was going on is going on in here. Uh, those kind of the folks are, are getting a, a strong response from the American people because they're authentic. Mm-hmm. You know, when you bring up a, a real problem here, though, for – uh, Republicans in the House, which is that, you know, given the fact that they have, uh, you know, a uh, a minority in the Senate and they have a bare House majority, uh, they really aren't going to be able to move things the way that many thought that they were going to be able to do so in confrontation, direct confrontation with Joe Biden and the White House to try to unspool some of the problems that you're talking about there. Is there something that you see as an advantage or a or a potential bipartisan shift something that could be put forward that would actually get uh, enough support from a handful of Democrats, perhaps, uh, who are trying to get reelected in what's going to be a very challenging uh, 2024, uh, that could potentially lead to a real confrontation that would be beneficial for the the cause that you're talking about, of of a more radical approach to the way that we do our policies? I I have have low hope (laughs) on this. Um, because the Democrats are very good at not giving any wins to the GOP, and mm-hmm. the GOP are very good at not giving any wins to the GOP. Mm-hmm. And when you combine those two things, that's a problem. But I was hopeful, actually, at the end of the year with the omnibus, which, uh, by the way, if, if you're one of those people who stayed at home and didn't vote for the GOP, even though you might normally, what better vindication did you have than Republicans yeah. trying to blast through this uh, this trillion-dollar spending bill at the end of the year? But I was hopeful for a moment there that, uh, there was going to be some bipartisan movement, probably majority Democrat, on the Open Apps Market Act might be shoved in there, which would break the control that uh, Apple and Google have over over who's able to access you and your phone. 
Uh, these are we, we think that it's important what's going on on Twitter, and it is important because it, it controls a lot of the dialogue uh, in the news media and government and corporate levels. But the fact that your phones are completely locked to anyone who Apple doesn't want to get in there or Google doesn't want to get in there, the fact that those companies control who's able to buzz your phone or ping you, whether you're at a funeral or reading the bedtime story to your children or sitting down at dinner, they can reach out and touch you with whoever they want and no one else at any time. That's a serious problem, and that, that's the kind of place where Republicans and Democrats both seem to get along. More Democrats, actually, than Republicans these days, but that would be something that I'd be interested in seeing. But uh, even with that, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, pessimism is easier because it's less, it's less hurtful when you get disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's go out on this, on this, Chris. You know, I think that one thing that we can be positive about, uh, you know, after this year uh, is that there does seem to finally be an awareness – on the part of all Americans, including older Americans, uh, that there's just too much leadership in this country that is way too old and that needs that we need to have younger leadership and new generations of leadership. Uh, is that something that's the one thing that I'm uh, most hopeful about uh, coming out of this year? Uh, do you share that hope? You and I have been talking about this for years, that literally uh, Democrat and Republican leadership are decade older than the Politburo. When we were making <laughs> fun of them. It's absolutely wild. And yeah, I think everyone's looking at this. I mean, they're going to, Nancy Pelosi's going to step down. They're going to say, this is the new thing I'm, I'm kind of curious about, that she was a great defender of democracy abroad. I didn't really notice that uh, watching yeah. her in live action. But yeah. they're going to lionize her and say she was great. And I'll say, fine, whatever. I remember walking through Massachusetts after Ted Kennedy died, you know, uh, (laughs) a a pretty interesting and not necessarily moral character. And everywhere I looked was the last lion of the Senate. And we're going to have to go through that awkward phase. But the good news is at the end of it, Ben, they'll all be gone. They won't be able to hurt us anymore. The bookstore windows will be annoying, yes, but a new generation can come up and – and it, the benches are the benches are pretty slim on the Democratic side, so it'll be yes. interesting to see what kind of how this vacuum is filled. It, definitely, and I'm sure that there'll be a, a lot of crazy to go around. You can follow Chris Bedford on Twitter at cbedforddc. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. You are listening to Fox Across America. I am your host today, Ben Dominich, coming to you for Jimmy Fela, who we are out hoping is creating all sorts of havoc uh, and having a lot of fun doing it. We'll be back with more right after this. This is Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. He is one of those iconic figures that fans care about. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host, Ben Dominich, in for Jimmy Fallon today. It has been a crazy year in politics, and I think that a lot of different developments have happened that are going to have major ramifications in the immediate uh, and foreseeable future. But one of those obviously has to be uh, the success of one Ron DeSantis in Florida. Obviously, DeSantis has been all over the airwaves Uh, over the past year. He's confronted uh, one of the most powerful corporations in Florida, in Disney. Uh, He has uh, gone after a number of different major hot-button issues. He has never been afraid of controversy, and he ultimately presided uh, over an incredible night for Republicans in Florida, uh, winning by double digits and and being, uh, you know, really turning a state that had been 
you know, a very slim margin, a slightly red state in recent years uh, into one that is firmly red, thanks in part to all the people who've moved there, thanks to his clear freedom-loving policies that he's had uh, during the COVID period. If there is one political winner uh, coming out of 2022, I think without question it has to be on the Republican side, Ron DeSantis, who's only going to receive, I think, continued calls to get into the 2024 presidential race, and I think it's very likely that he will. The big question is whether he can uh, graduate to that national level uh, with the kind of success that we've seen uh, not uh, be in the case of of other governors who've tried to make a similar jump. We all remember Scott Walker, who was supposed to be, you know, the king of of everything when it came to uh, the 2016 contest. And yet he was out before people even started voting. Ron DeSantis will have to do things differently if he's going to succeed. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich, your host today. We'll be back with more right after this. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host today, Ben Dominich, in Jimmy Fallon's chair. Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree, putting the decorations back into their cardboard boxes. Some have got broken. And carrying them up to the attic, the holly and the mistletoe must be taken down and burnt, and children got ready for school. There are enough leftovers to do warmed up for the rest of the week. Not that we have much appetite, having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted, quite unsuccessfully, to love all of our relatives, and in general, grossly overestimated our powers. And that is probably the first and last time that W.H. Auden will be fe- featured on a show hosted by Jimmy Fela. I-, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about Christmas. It's a hard holiday, actually, for a lot of people. It gets harder as you get older. Uh, you have less time to enjoy it, uh, less time to enjoy the, the kinds of things that you did as a child. And so you have to kind of set aside uh, those different things in order to try to advance the pleasures of, of your kids and grandkids and the like. Uh, But I also think that it's an opportunity in the sense that you can make sure that the the family traditions are are passed down in a in a way that uh, really gives due respect to those who've come before and those who invested so much time and effort in maintaining those traditions, in spite of all the chaos that is inevitably surrounding you when it comes to the holiday season. I think that it's a real challenge, obviously, for people to deal with the loss that they've experienced those who may have passed on in the intervening time, in the intervening year. Certainly there were families during the last several years who lost many people due to COVID or due to you know fentanyl, due to all sorts of different disease and, and the like. And that's very tough for, for all of us to deal with you know, as adults because you don't want to be down in the dumps about that kind of thing at a time when you, know, you would have appreciated the company of those who've gone on before you. But I think that one of the things that we can appreciate about this time is that these traditions are a way to reconnect with those who are no longer here, that you can remember uh, the recipes, the ways that you shared in certain things, the ornaments that you had, the, uh, the way that you would decorate or that you would sing, the songs that you would play, uh, the movies that would, uh, you would watch inevitably uh, with those 
who you no longer have with you. And I think it's also a time to assess the good things that happened in a year when there were so many things that were, frankly, quite bad for a lot of Americans, challenges that they had to experience in their own lives and that they had to deal with in all different manner, you know, whether it's the challenges of the economy, the challenges of, you know, families that still are not unified given the fractious nature of our current political scene, or the challenges, frankly, of trying to adapt children back to the experience, the normal experience of getting an education, going to school, getting back out into life in ways that many of them, frankly, have not experienced to this point because they've been hidden behind masks. They've been unable to experience uh, the classroom with their classmates and the like. One thing that I try to do at the end of every year when I'm just sort of seeing people and getting together with old friends as one does around the holidays is just try to ask them about one good thing that happened to them in their life this year. And what I find is almost inevitably people have answers that are about things that are much more important than any of the trivial challenges, the the minor inconveniences of life that plague us throughout the year. And so even if, you know, what's front of mind is the fact that you need to get the car fixed or that you, you know, have some kind of problem with your house that needs to be dealt with or that the neighbor is doing construction and it's faking a racket uh, or that, you know, you're your dog has an issue, your cat has an issue, uh, or you have family difficulties for all manner of reasons. If you put those things front of mind, those more important things front of mind, then often you find that everything else just is kind of swept away by them. That as much as you might dwell on the types of things that are challenges, everyday challenges for all manner of Americans, whether you're rich or poor, that the reality of what has happened to you is more beneficial. And so when I asked this question the other day online to my Twitter followers, I was deluged with people who were saying, I got engaged, I got married, I bought a house for the first time, I graduated from college, or in most cases, I had a child or I had a grandchild. And these are the things that I think we have to kind of keep in perspective because as much as we have the concerns that come to us at the end of every year when we see all of the challenges that are going to face us in the new year, when we try to set them aside in order to enjoy the company of our friends and family, I think that we have to understand that we should keep things in perspective, that life is hard, but that there's also great joy to be found in it, and that these deeper, more important things uh, are often the things that we ought to keep at the center of our perspective as opposed to the, the to putting them to the side. In the past year, navigating uh, in the wake of a number of different uh, miscarriages, my wife and I were uh, happy to uh, have her, you know, finally, you know, as she has announced to the world, uh, get pregnant with our, our second daughter, who will be arriving here uh, in the coming weeks, who we hope to be healthy and happy and wonderful. And the challenge of preparing for that arrival is, of course, massive. You know, you have to set up a nursery. You have to, you know, buy all of these things that you thought you had from before, but that you somehow have lost track of. You have to, you know, put things together and you have to, you know, take care of all manner of of, uh, home life balance things all the way through, even as you're preparing for, 
you know, in our case, you know, the holiday season and travel and everything else that comes with that, uh, and just the normal challenges of, of uh, working and living, uh, you know, in a in a very busy industry. But I try to keep in perspective the fact that you know, right around the corner, there's going to be this little girl who I'm going to get to meet for the first time. And that means more to me than any of these other challenges, any of these other irritations. And as much as you might go a little crazy, like everybody goes a little crazy when you're trying to unstring those lights. And even if you've checked them three times over, inevitably, when you get them around that tree or around uh, around your front porch, uh, there's going to be a chunk of them that just don't light up no matter how many different fixes you try to uh, try. Uh, that You have to keep in perspective that these are minor inconveniences of life and that the major things, the big things, are going well and that those are the things that we should care about the most. I won't remember battling those lights, uh, but I will remember, of course, uh, the birth of our daughter in just a few weeks and remember it as being one of the greatest things to ever happen to me. And so, knock on wood and prayerfully, I am grateful for a year in which as many challenges as we've had as a, a people as a country, as families, as friends, and as individuals, that this is also a year that has been very good in a great many ways uh, and that those are the things that we ought to appreciate. I also want to put in perspective for you all that this is a time when I think it's important to reassess uh, the people that you have in your life. You know, one thing that I've learned over the years is that that there's a lot that can get sucked out of you and a lot that can get put back into your life with the friendships that you have and that you maintain. And I think that it's a good thing to kind of take stock, go down the list and say, who should I be spending more time with? Who would be helpful in the, in the coming year? Who would be a benefit to me as a friend? And who is actually taking time away from people who I love or, you know, being a negative influence or something like that? I think, you know, oftentimes we have these self-help experiences uh, that are designed to try to help us you know, reorient things or get a to-do list done or to, you know, engage in self-improvement that starts in January and people inevitably sort of slide off from it. But one thing that I think is really a great benefit to me and has been a great benefit to me this year is getting closer with some of the friends that I've had uh, who I really realized that I ought to be spending more time with and ought to be associating more with in my life. And that's been a great benefit to me and to my family. And I think it's also something that is good to do on a regular yearly basis. I assess the number of things that I listen to. I assess the books that I read. I assess the subscriptions that I have, you know, at the end of every year to see if I want to keep listening to, or I want to, you know, keep downloading that podcast or keep subscribing to that publication. And I think that when it comes to the relationships that we have, that's something that's good to do too. And to take a real good stock of whether what they're bringing into your life is something that's good and beneficial for both of you or whether it's something that actually it's good to move on, it's good to grow, it's good to go in different directions. So well, with one final note on this, I think in 2023, something that I definitely want to be cognizant of is offer, offering people more grace when I disagree with them. The natural assumption that I have, as I think a lot of people who work in media and politics, is that when you disagree with someone that they've you know, that they are aware of why you disagree with them or that they're aware of all the different things that go into that belief. But I don't think that's always the case. And I think sometimes we jump to the conclusion that it is without the evidence that it actually is. Being able to talk to each other, even as we disagree, 
you know, especially for those whose, you know, uh, presence in our life we value is something I think is deeply important. And so as much as, you know, my advice is worth the amount that you just paid for it, I would just encourage you in the coming year to do these things and to think this way because it's certainly been of great benefit to me in 2022, uh, and I hope that it will help you too. I'm Ben Dominic. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be back with more right after this. This thing is going to become gargantuan when the Son of Man comes. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host today, Ben Dominich, in for Jimmy Fela. I did want to address something that I think is, is kind of uh, received a bit more attention than perhaps I thought it would. Maybe that's just because it's a slow news week. And that's this uh, whole controversy over Whoopi Goldberg, who uh, addressed in a an interview to the Sunday Times, the UK newspaper, uh, her previous comments uh, that had gotten her in a lot of hot water over race and the Holocaust. Uh, Let's go back to those uh, original comments. Cut 19. The Holocaust isn't about race. No. No. It's not about race. Maybe it's a different race. But it's it's not about race. It's not about race. What is it about? Because it's about man's inhumanity to man. I was saying you can't call this racism. This was evil. Mm-hmm. This wasn't this wasn't based on the skin. You couldn't tell who was Jewish, but it is indeed about race because Hitler and the Nazis considered Jews to be an inferior race. You know, this is a situation that has played out with Whoopi Goldberg before. She's talked about the Holocaust in some pretty irresponsible ways uh, over the years. But one of the things that I think is interesting about this development is not so much what it says about Whoopi Goldberg as what it says about uh, the nature of our media and the way that we are dealing with race differently now than perhaps we were a few years ago. You know, a few years ago, you could really get away with saying a lot of different things if you uh, were operating from the perspective uh, that you were someone who had been victimized historically or came from a victimized group. And that's something that just was a fact. It was something that people uh, used, I think, to get away with saying some things that were pretty aggressive on race. Uh, And I just don't think that's true anymore. I think that now we're in a new reality where people are willing to sort of stand up and say, look, you know, you you can't just say all of these things and think that you're uh, going to operate from a position – where you are untouchable and you don't have to uh, be called on account of when you get things fundamentally wrong. Obviously, the Anti-Defamation League, you know, which is uh, no friend of the right, and their CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, uh, were uh, very critical of Whoopi Goldberg for what she said. And it led to this, you know, ultimate uh, sort of apology uh, where she said, you know, it was never my intention to appear as if I was doubling down on hurtful comments, especially after talking with and hearing people like rabbis and old and new friends weighing in. And what I think that the thing uh, that we should take away from this, and that this is a good thing, is that no longer, I think, is there going to be just sort of a pass given to people based on their politics or based on race or anything like that when they say something that is just so aggressively and egregiously wrong. And I think that that's a good thing. It's it's an example, perhaps in this case of the left eating its own, uh, going after Whoopi Goldberg, who is an icon, uh, iconic, uh, you know, person for so many different respects and he got winner, et cetera, you know, for, for something that she, you know, 
chose for whatever reason to bring back up in this interview with the Sunday Times. But I think that one of the things that we should uh, understand about this is that it's good to go ahead and call people out based on the same ways that they would call other people out. You know, over and over again, uh, this was a situation where, you know, we have seen, you know, people claim that uh, that Republicans are racist. You know, the, the calls from Joe Biden this year about the laws passed in Georgia as uh, Jim Crow 2.0 or uh, what have you, uh, the, the Jim Crow, Jim Eagle comment. I totally have forgotten about that. Uh, you know, those types of aggressive uh, weaponization of America's uh, racial politics is something that is absolutely terrible. But I also think that a, that a response to that is is not just to condemn it, it is not to ignore it, but is to say, well, wait a minute, if you're going to start using that standard, well, that should be turned around. When you have the kind of votes that happened in Georgia, the overwhelming huge turnout um, that you know saw once again the defeat of, of Stacey Abrams uh, in her race to be governor there, you know that was something that <clears throat> had a few questions lobbed at the White House because of it. But it's also the sort of thing that, you know, if Joe Biden actually gave interviews or actually took questions from anybody, he should be called out on. You know, the the people who are stoking racial resentment uh, in America are often the same people who claim to be holier than thou, uh, you know, people who are willing to sort of uh, chide from a perspective that they are of higher morality uh, than the people that they are chiding who will, you know, frame the people on the other side as being you know, Nazis or crypto Confederates or something along those lines. Um, and I think that the best way to deal with that is to confront it, is to turn it around and to say, look, I'm confident that I'm not racist. I'm confident that I'm speaking from an informed perspective, uh, but I'm also going to call you out when you in- engage in this same type of, of flippant behavior uh, that Whoopi Goldberg engaged in uh, and uh, and demand that this be something that, you know, requires an apology or a retraction from someone so prominent. Keep in mind, she's on a program that is part of ABC News. It is not it is a news program. Uh, it is not, you know, considered to be entertainment or under that uh, umbrella. And I think one of the reasons that you've seen the conversation increase about the possibility that Bob Iger is returning to Disney in order to spin off Uh, potentially ESPN and ABC, is in part because Disney understands that they don't want to have to deal with headaches like this. They want to use ABC and ESPN to promote their other properties, uh, you know, to be to be part of this, uh, you know, whole network that they're building with Disney Plus uh, and with their purchase and acquisition of so many different uh, uh, intellectual properties over the past several years under Iger's leadership. They do not want to have to deal with but the kind of headache that comes from major figures uh, in major movies, uh, you know, having to apologize uh, for, you know, once again, raising these types of controversial uh, issues and putting them forward in ways that, frankly, uh, just sound, sound idiotic and sound uh, ignorant of history. Uh, unfortunately, you know, that's what Wolfie Goldberg had to experience this time around. But I do think there is, again, about more than just her. It's about a shift in the way that people are willing to confront this type of idiocy when it comes to race relations in a more distinct and blunt manner, which I think is a good thing. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more right after this.
And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host today, Ben Dominich, in Jimmy Fela's chair for the next chunk of time. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to be joined right now by Cara Kennedy. She is a staff writer at The Spectator. You can follow her on Twitter at Cara Alice Kennedy. Cara, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me on. So one of the things we've been covering, uh, we've been looking back at 2022 during the course of the past couple of hours, uh, that we haven't gotten to yet is what an incredible year it has been for a couple at the center of the conversation in celebrity and politics and race and just about every other aspect of anything that people care about. And that is, of course, Harry and Meghan. And I know that you've been concentrating on all the different things that they've been doing over the past year, a year in which uh, their lives uh, really were turned upside down in different respects and, and which in which they seem to have beef with just about everybody around them. Uh, when you look back at the experience that they had in 2022, what sticks out to you as kind of the, the major storylines of what Harry and Meghan did that got them so much attention? Uh, well, that's a big question. I mean, it's been such a wild year with uh, Sussex News, which is quite surprising because we didn't really hear from them much after the Oprah interview. Uh, we saw Harry attend things like the unveiling of the statue of his late mother, Diana, at Kensington Palace. And obviously, Harry attended the funeral of um, Prince Philip, which Meghan didn't go to either. And then 2022, it all kind of came... came uh, pummeling back. Uh, specifically the last six months, we've seen a lot from the Sussexes. They were kind of quiet for the first half of the year. Um, so in June, they attended the Platinum Jubilee with the rest of the Royals, but we could tell things were tense already. They sat in the second row with uh, Princess Eugenie and Princess Beatrice, and there was kind of little to no contact with the others. Um, there were a few headlines of uh, Meghan looking at Charles, and as soon as she looked at him, he kind of turned the other way. And then the big one was um, the Queen's funeral, where they both attended. They they did the walkabout with uh, Princess Catherine and and Prince William. And it, again, that was very tense. I mean, there was one photo taken. The couples were really distant. They didn't really look at each other. And then it came out afterwards that um, there were tense words kind of between the couples, and and, the, and there was little to no contact throughout the whole of, of the Queen's death. Um, and then since then, again, you kind of thought, oh, what can they do next? Well, uh, ha Meghan and Harry, um, the Netflix documentary, which it, it kind of uh, it, it plummeted. I mean, I think they thought that it was going to do themselves a favor. But even even staunch Sussex supporters by then were kind of like, oh, come on, guys, give us a break. And now you think um, the new year is the time for forgiveness. It's the time for getting on with stuff. And then uh, in January 10th, we have Spear, Harry's um, up-and-coming memoir. So, yeah, it's been a big year for the, for the two that wanted privacy. So tell me the, uh, the gossip surrounding the way that uh, this Netflix special was put together and the reaction afterwards to it. Because I agree with you, it seemed like they were assuming that people would watch because they would listen to their story and like them. Uh, when in reality, it seemed like people were, were hate-watching it or watching it to see a, a train wreck. Yeah, well, part of me thinks that so it's obviously the most watched documentary on Netflix at the moment. And I think it, maybe there's more journalists in the world than I realise, because I feel like only journalists watch this to kind of write about <laughs> it. And yeah, like I said, even very left-wing 
publications it was called like a snooze fest a cringe fest um even the the new york uh, times said that the total narcissists i mean it didn't seem to do well from any angle um it took longer than we thought it was going to there were rumors surrounding that the same as fear that harry was kind of scrambling for stuff back um because uh, well, the, the rumour is that a lot of stuff he said was in anger. And then when he realised that this was all going to be published, he kind of thought, oh, damn, I need to kind of get mm. some of this stuff back. Otherwise, there is no going back. But what we did see from the documentary that we haven't seen before. So basically, all we've seen from them is them making baseless accusations without really saying who has said what or what has really gone on. Uh, but this time we saw the camps. So the Sussex camp and the Windsors, we learn who is on whose team and who is in and out. So in the Netflix documentary, what we really learn is that there is no going back for Harry, especially in terms of William and Catherine. He made them out to be literally the worst people on earth. Um, secondly, Charles, King Charles and, and Queen Camilla as well. They were kind of on the on the Windsor camp. What we did learn is that Beatrice and Eugenie are, are kind of team Sussex more than any other part of the family which was interesting so yeah we did learn something in the last three hours of the documentary the first three were kind of like oh we've been wronged we're victims and it was it was just rehashing the same old stuff that they usually say the general uh you know sort of assessment seems in america seems to be that this is a, a situation where harry is whipped megan is guiding the course of what they do um that this is all about what she wants uh, and it's carefully constructed in order to uh, achieve her aims. Do you share that view, or do you think that it's more complicated than that? I think I did. I think I think I probably did think that at first, but now it doesn't even matter if this is Megan driving it. Harry is letting her do it. Like mm-hmm. he has made his bed. Now he needs to lie on it. I mean, I was a very big supporter earlier on. Earlier on in the year, I wrote a piece saying that. Um, Meghan and Harry have exhausted Hollywood, but if Harry ever wanted to come back, then there would be a place for him. Now, this was June, and within two months, my opinion was completely different to that. Hmm. There is no coming back for them at all. I mean, regardless of whether this started out as Meghan being the boss, Harry has let too much stuff happen now. Uh, Yeah, I just think there's no coming back. I mean, especially in terms of, like, just died it hasn't been very long at all i mean now we now we've learned that she probably died of a very painful cancer in the bone and the fact that that those two allowed all of this stuff to happen in the lead up to her last few months i mean it just shows that they really have no respect for anybody apart from themselves they don't care about anybody else's truth apart from their own which differs massively to everybody else's um truth and i think that the fact that all of this was going on now we've recently learned when the queen was very very ill i think that it has taken the one bit of respect we had away from harry and now we're kind of like do you know what you've made your bed now you lie in it we don't care Mm -hmm. i saw i watched the uh the king's speech christmas speech uh and thought it was uh quite well done i'm curious as to your opinion on the way that the other royals are responding to this, or in a sense, not responding to it, not uh, d- deciding to in- deciding to basically disengage uh, and and not rise to the bait that Harry and Meghan are putting out there. 
Yeah, well, I think Charles's Christmas speech kind of did that too. Everybody, there was uproar because Harry and Meghan weren't mentioned. But I mean, why would they be? They made it very clear that they want nothing to do with this family. Um, the turning point, I think, was Charles's first speeches as king after the Queen died when he said um, the new prince and princess of Wales and introduced Kate and William as the new titles and then said, and I hope Harry, Harry and Meghan are happy in America. And that for him was kind of like, this is done. This is, I'm drawing a line under this and, 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 and they are done. So I was quite surprised at that for after the King's speech, after the King's Christmas speech, because um, he didn't mention Harry and Meghan, but he made it clear all, all those months ago on his first broadcast that they were done. I mean, they have done nothing for the British people. I mean, this is fundamentally a speech for the British people. Charles spoke about um, how much he respects emergency services, nurses, um, and spoke about the hardships that people are going through between having to choose between heating or eating and sympathise with that. I mean, Harry and Meghan have done nothing for the British people since January 2020 when they stepped down. Uh, so, yeah, I don't really see why anybody would have ever expected those to be um, involved in the speech. Do you think that this is going to be something that, uh, in the long term, uh, results in uh, a, a sort of uh, less appreciation uh, uh, for the royals or more? Meaning, does the fact that this kind of attempt to undermine them so directly and so transparently uh, by Harry and Meghan, if it's unsuccessful, do you think there's kind of a, a, a rally around the royals kind of response to it that basically says, yes, we're, we're just not interested in this uh, this thing that you're selling. Uh, you seem like a real train wreck of a couple and, and we're not really interested uh, in hearing from you anymore. Or is it the sort of thing where, uh, you know, people will still buy the book just because they want that gossip? Well, I mean, in terms of whether this will affect the royals, the royal family is like a phoenix that rises from the ashes every time. I mean, this isn't the first drama they've had. I mean, you look at the, <laughs> you look at the abdication, um, you look at Diana, every time that you think, oh, there's going to be a real push for republicanism and there's going to be a real republican movement, they seem to just get stronger and stronger every time. I mean, at January 2020, when they first came out and stepped down, there was this fascination, I think, more than anything else. Why is this couple stepping down from this hereditary monarchy that seemed so amazing and so graceful? And then the Oprah interview, there was fascination. Oh, are the royals racist? What's going on? I think it was more more inquisitiveness than anything else. But now, because everything is being repeated every few months, people are so exhausted. And I wrote this a few months ago, that you don't have to ask palace insiders, royal insiders, royal sources. All you have to do is walk into any pub and mention their names. And you are met by raised eyebrows, groans, uh, people telling you to stop talking about them. People are just so exhausted. And there are only so many times that you can say the same thing, that you can speak your truth. I'm, I'm putting bracket marks around those because obviously <laughs> it's not always the truth. But yeah, I mean, it's fair. If there's anything new in it, then people will buy it. But I, I just think that the majority of us are so exhausted with these pair right now. And I don't want to be overcritical of them. I always find myself writing um, critically about them. And then I think that if they did anything good, then I would write nicely about them. But until <laughs> that day, it, like it, it's, it's kind of exhausting as a journalist. I don't want to write about them all the time. But yes. they, they are so hungry for 
commentary and obviously it's my job to comment on it that that they it, it's it's a really vicious circle because they don't want anybody to talk about them but they're just totally deplorable right now they don't do anything good at all and i just hope <laughs> that that after spay that's it for them i mean yeah. they, they alluded to the fans in in the documentary that they're, they're trying to move on and this is going to be the end of it but I mean you just don't know with these two so hopefully after January 10th when, when this memoir comes out that will be the end of it all something tells me that <laughs> given the level of narcissism there that you'll have plenty to write about in the coming year 2023 as well Cara Kennedy thank you so much for taking the time to join me you can follow her on Twitter at Cara Alice Kennedy thanks so much thank you Ben I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. We'll be back with more right after this. Jimmy Fallon. Nice kid, but a little dumb. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich in the seat today for Jimmy Fallon. I want to thank you all for listening today as we've covered a lot of different things about 2022. I wanted to bring up one thing in particular that sticks out to me as just being some uh, a thought that I hope will uh, you know have some impact with you. It seems to me that one of the things that's wrong about the way that we live our lives today in America is that we focus too much on the national as opposed to the local. We've focused so much on major stories that become, you know, national level controversies, things that the president or the White House is expected to respond to. Uh, But, you know, as one of our guests, uh, Chris Bedford, earlier said, you know, the truth is that you shouldn't really care about who the secretary of transportation is unless they're doing their job very badly. In fact, you know, we should care a lot more about the things that are closer to us. And that's something that I hope we can get back to in the future. Unfortunately, right now, that's just not the case. Things are going so badly on a national level on a comprehensive level, that we have to respond to it, I think, by nationalizing a lot of these debates in order to try to get the the necessary response from people who matter and who can actually make changes. That's one of the reasons why I think it's so important, uh, as we'll talk about tomorrow on uh, Fox Across America, that what's happening at Twitter is happening and that we are actually getting the kind of information that we needed uh, about the way that our own uh, conversations have been affected oftentimes without our knowledge uh, by major uh, government entities participating in, in, uh, in driving and uh, determining who is allowed to speak and who is allowed to be heard. I also think that this is a situation which is uh, you know, unfortunate for America because we have thrived as a nation in which the people of this country, our citizens, have had the time and the energy to focus on the things that are closest to them, on their family, their community, uh, their church, their temple, their mosque. And I think that one of the things that we have gotten away from, unfortunately, is that type of localism in the way that we are governed. It's a lot harder to hate your neighbor uh, than it is to hate someone who seems at a distance, who seems you know, uh, unlike anyone that you actually know in your life. It's a lot uh, easier to get along with people when you actually see them regularly, when they're you know, around you, when they are watching your kids or you know, helping, uh, helping out in your community, when you're you know, trading the responsibilities of taking care of a little league team and the like. 
one of the things that I hope that we can get back to in future years is more localism, is more of a closer understanding to, uh, you know, the people who are around us and not necessarily getting caught up in the way that I think that we have been too much in recent years in these national quarrels and and fights uh, where all that really matters is the color tie that you're wearing, whether it's blue or whether it's red, as opposed to what you're actually saying in terms of the ability of people to judge what's going on and to assess you as a person, as opposed to just someone who, you know, has, you know, at the center of their mind, either the best for America or the worst, depending on what party you're in. That's something that I think, you know, I try to work on myself, and I hope that you will as well in 2023. And part of that, I think, is just getting to know people, getting to know people around you, having places that you go to regularly, and being able to have conversations with people that, you know, aren't just broken down according to uh, the bumper stickers that they have on the back of their car. That's something that I try to do in my own life and that I hope you will as well. We may not always succeed at it because it's very easy to get, you know, uh, driven up, to get spun up by all of the different dramatic and and very significant fights that are happening in America today. But I think that a little less hate and a little more grace is something that is easier to show when we actually view people as being our neighbors as opposed to just being the avatars of everything that we hate when we turn on the channel that we don't like. It's been a pleasure to talk to you all today and to share some of these thoughts about 2022, about the politics of it, the celebrity of it, and some of the craziness that went down. Uh, but I also want to remind you that this is something that you know we ought to do, I think, on a regular basis, to, to, to take a step back from the constant you know, refresh of everything that's going on, just in the most recency-biased approach to assessing what matters in the news, and have a little more perspective on the things that matter the most. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to this edition of Fox Across America. I'll be back tomorrow with more Back in Jimmy Fallon's Seat. Until then, I hope you have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.